As you're grabbing your seats, go ahead and get your Bibles and open them to John chapter 18. John chapter 18, as Brian has already alluded to, we're in a a sermon series called It Is Finished. We're taking an in-depth look at the final week of Jesus Christ. If you're a guest with us or you're new to this sermon series, I'd like to spend a little bit of time kind of catching you up to where we're at today. We began our journey in, in John chapter 11, at the end of John chapter 11. And at the end of John chapter 11, Jesus performs a very significant miracle. The Bible tells us that he brings a guy named Lazarus back to life who's been dead for four days. And as you can imagine, uh, it causes a little bit of a stir in the community that Lazarus lives Lives in. The Bible tells us that uh, that city's called Bethany. It's about two miles outside of Jerusalem. And so the word is getting out about Jesus. And the Bible tells us that the religious leaders uh, gather together in what's called the Sanhedrin. It's a group of 70 uh, men that would uh, come together and make decisions on behalf of, of Israel. And, and so they get together and they decide that because Jesus is causing quite a stir and that the Romans might come in and take away their power and, and all of their stuff, they decide that they need to do something about this Jesus guy. And so they decide that the best thing for them to do would be to arrest him and eventually try to kill him, right? And so that's the plan that's set out. Because of that, Jesus goes to Ephraim a little while, a couple days, and he lays low with his disciples because he knows his time has not yet come. And as the week progresses, we see that Jesus works his way back towards Bethany and Jerusalem because something very significant is happening in the life of the culture and the people. They are about to celebrate Passover. And so Jesus works his way back to Bethany. We know that Friday he has dinner with Mary and Martha and Lazarus and Mary anoints Jesus there and they're celebrating the fact that Jesus has raised their brother Lazarus back to life, right? And they're also celebrating the fact that Jesus is who he says he is, right? They recognize that this truly is the Son of God. Now, they had a close relationship with Christ, but, but him bringing people back to life, like, like that was the final thing that they needed to see to recognize that this truly is the Son of God. And so we see that dinner take place, and then Saturday of that weekend's the Sabbath, and so not a whole lot happens. And then beginning Sunday morning, Jesus goes into uh, Jerusalem, and Jesus is going to do this every day for most of the week. Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, he's going to go into Jerusalem. He's going to hang out in the temple. He's going to teach. And the Bible tells us on this first day of the week, Sunday, that Jesus, as he's entering into Jerusalem, the people gather together and they decide that it's time to make this guy our king, right? And so they grab palm branches. We know this uh, as Palm Sunday. And so Jesus is making his way into the city and then they're saying, Hosanna, which means save us, right? And they're welcoming Jesus into Jerusalem as their king. And we know that Jesus also goes public with that. This is the first time in scripture that Jesus goes public. Prior to this, when the people tried to make Jesus their king, uh, he would retreat some because he knew his time had not yet come. But in this instance, on Sunday morning, Jesus rides into Jerusalem, fulfilling the prophecy of Zechariah 9.9 as he enters into the city on the back of a donkey's colt. And that's his way of going public with the fact that I am truly the Messiah. And so we talk about that being uh, the Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry of Jesus in the city. Now, like I said, 
He's going to spend Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday uh, doing something very similar, going into the city, uh, teaching in the temple. And then Thursday, we looked at Thursday last week. So the most significant thing that happens on Thursday is that Jesus spends the evening with his disciples. Jesus spends an entire evening with his closest guys, the guys that he spent three years of ministry with. As we were hearing testimony this morning, it reminded me when we heard testimony of those that were on this mission trip together. You, you spend uh, eight days and seven nights together and, and you bond in a very unique way because you've been in the trenches together. You've been in ministry together, right? Now imagine that you've spent most of all of your waking moments with the same group of people for three years. And everything's been about Jesus' ministry. And so he spends that evening with his closest guys. We call it the Last Supper, right? Because it's the last time that Jesus is going to eat with those that are closest to him. And John actually dedicates the most to that, that evening, right? We see from chapter 13 to chapter 17 that Jesus is addressing his disciples in what we call the Last Supper. Now, immediately following that Last Supper, the Bible tells us that it's already nighttime, and as they, they end that time together, they, they go out to the Garden of Gethsemane, and that's where we're gonna pick up in the context of our story today. So we know it's very late. Uh, most commentators believe that it's actually very early Friday morning. So think sometime after midnight. So they've, they've spent this intimate time together. Jesus has disclosed all kinds of things to them. He's encouraged them. He's prayed for them. He's done, he's done all that. He's instituted the Lord's Supper. And now they're gonna go to a place and they're going to spend those early morning hours in the Garden of Gethsemane in a time of prayer. And that's where we pick up in the context of our study today. So we're going to be in John chapter 18, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 11. And what we're going to see here is the betrayal and the arrest of Jesus Christ, all right? The betrayal and the arrest of Jesus. Now, I'm about to read all 11 verses and then pray, and then we'll unpack it here in just a second. But as we've said from the very beginning of this study, I want you to be listening for some things. I want you to be looking for some things. And one of those things that I want you to look for this morning is, is Jesus' sovereign control, right? Like, I want us to be reminded as we study this passage of Scripture today that, that Jesus is in control of this situation every step of the way. And we're gonna see that Jesus truly is the Son of God. And we're gonna conclude, and I pray that all of us conclude here together this morning, that not only is he the Son of God, but in him we can find life and him alone, right? And so that's our goal this morning. So as I read this, I want you to look for those things that show us that Jesus truly is the Son of God, that Jesus really is in sovereign control of everything that happens in this interaction when these people show up to arrest him in the Garden of Gethsemane. So, if you would, begin reading with me in John chapter 18, starting in verse 1. Scripture says, When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? 
They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Jesus who, or excuse me, Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When, <coughs> excuse me. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I've lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Let's pray together this morning. God, we thank you so much for all that you've done. On our behalf, God, we pray that this morning as we look at this text, God, that I pray that you would give us clarity. God, I pray that you would uh, give us understanding here, give us wisdom. God, I pray that we would see as we study this passage of Scripture that the arrest and betrayal of Jesus wasn't something that was just happening to Jesus. But God, this was in fulfillment of your sovereign plan from the very beginning. God, I pray that we recognize that Jesus is in full control here and that the only way that Christ goes to the cross is if he decides to willingly go. And so, Father, I pray that you would guide our time together, help us to see, to see your intentionality in this passage, and we pray this in Christ's name, amen. All right, so as I said, we're gonna, we're gonna take a look at four things this morning in this passage that I wanna make sure that we don't miss when we study this text because it's gonna help us best understand that Jesus is in sovereign control over everything that takes place here on this early Friday morning as he is arrested and betrayed. And we're gonna start our study this morning with this, that Jesus chose the place. Jesus chose the the place. It's the first thing that we need to see here to see that Jesus was in control of this entire situation. You see there in verse 1 and 2. In verse 1, it said, When he had spoken these words, he went with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. So Jesus intentionally takes his disciples from where they are eating the Last Supper to a very specific place of his choosing. Now, we also know, according to the other Gospels, that it was very common for Jesus to take his disciples to this garden for prayer anytime they were around Jerusalem. So this night, no different. Jesus takes his disciples to the garden. In verse 2, it says, Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So it's significant for us to see and to understand that Jesus chose the place. He chose us a place that, that was known to Judas, right? I was telling the first service this morning, I was stopped in my tracks this week as I'm studying commentary because I came across the idea that, that Jesus chose the garden not to hide, but to be found, but think about that for a second. He chose the garden not so that he would have a place of hiding, but so that he might be found. He's going to the place that everybody knows that he's going to be at, right? 
Like we all know if you're playing uh, a game of hide and seek, like that's a terrible idea, right? This morning I was uh, poking my head into the early childhood rooms down there and one of the classes was actually playing hide and seek. And as you can imagine, it can be pretty difficult to play hide and seek in one big open room that everybody's in, right? And so there's a little girl down, she's, she's counting and everybody's hiding. So you've got somebody standing against the wall over here and one under the table and Heather Tucker's over by the door, you know, and so she gets done counting and opens her eyes and and you could even see by the look on her face at three or four years old that this is too easy right because she looks up and she sees Heather and she goes found you Right, and so, uh, so it, it reminded me this morning as I watched that, like, like uh, of what's happening here. Like, listen, if, if you want to, if you want to go to a place to be uh, found, like, like go to a place easy, right? Go to a place that that you're not. Uh, being very successful at hiding, right? Like, and that's what Jesus is doing here. Jesus isn't trying to go to a place to hide. He's going to a place to be found. I also told the first service that while Aaron was gone uh, on the trip to Nicaragua, I was here with four little girls, all right? And so uh, I was like just surviving, right? We were not thriving. We were surviving, surviving with all that. We ate a lot of mac and cheese and pizza rolls, and we went out to dinner many, many times, all right? But, but we had to do what we had to do. One of the things that we would do every evening was play hide-and-seek, but like the version of it that's called sardines. Anybody familiar with sardines? You ever play this? Like It's like when you find the person that's hiding, you're supposed to stay there with them, right? And, and what I realized very quickly was like, like Lincoln, she's three. She's not real great at this game, right? Where do you think Lincoln goes and hides? She goes and hides in the same place that she hid the round before, right? Like every single time, like we're not gonna figure this out. I also figured out that if I ever want this game to end on my turn, I better hide somewhere where they can find me, right? Now, if I really wanted to, I could go hide somewhere where they would never find me. In fact, I know how to get up in the attic, and they don't. I could have hidden up there until Aaron returned from Nicaragua, right? That, that, that might have been a decent little plan, all right? But, but, but I knew that if I ever want this game of sardines to end, I actually have to choose a place that they will be able to find, right? Because I want this to be a fun experience for them, but I don't, I don't want to fall asleep here accidentally, right? But while they're looking for me, the same, same thing is true in this text. Like Jesus intentionally chooses an easy place to find him. Why? Because he's not trying to hide. Jesus's intent and his goal here is, is to be found. What do you think about that? That just demonstrates to us that he's in sovereign control of all these things. Jesus isn't hiding from a group of people, like, like he's intentionally waiting for them to show up. Why? Because Jesus knows that this week and this day has to end with my death on the cross. So I'm gonna go to a place that's gonna be real easy to find me. Bible tells us that Judas knows where to take the people because it's where Jesus often goes with his disciples. So Jesus chooses the place that he knows that Judas will be able to find him in. And that's the first thing that we saw in this text, that Jesus chose the place and it demonstrates for us that he's in sovereign control over all of this that transpires. Now, the second thing we're gonna look at is verse three and four. So here we see that Jesus confronted the mob. Jesus confronted the mob. Now look at verse three. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Now, 
for me, I'm like, I, I like, I like visual pictures, right? So that I can best understand what's happening here. So in your mind, I don't want you to think about like, like, 10 or 15 or 30 guys showing up to arrest Jesus, right? The other gospels actually give us more details and they say that Judas is given a Roman cohort, right? So that cohort uh, can be up to 600 Roman soldiers. So, so imagine in your mind 600 people showing up to the garden and the Bible tells us that when they show up, they've got lanterns and torches and weapons, right? And so that really kind of helps set the scene in our minds. So Jesus is somewhere in the Garden of Gethsemane. They know he's in there, and they've shown up. They've shown up to, to capture him and to arrest him, right? And they have an idea of how this might go. You can tell by the preparations that they make before they get there, right? Like, like why would somebody show up with weapons to this deal? To, to arrest a man who's never hurt anyone, right? I have a little bit of a guess, right? They know that a couple days ago, he brought someone back to life, right? So, so they know that there's something significant about this guy, right? Like that's why you show up with 600 people and weapons, right? Because if, if this thing gets a, a little crazy, we're gonna need some people, right? And so they show up there. And then we also see that they have lanterns and torches. Now, in my mind, I'm thinking they show up with all these lights because the garden's dark. And if you wanna find somebody in the garden, what do you need? You need lanterns and torches, right? You need to be able to have these things so that you can find them where they're hiding in there. And this is what's interesting. Jesus isn't hiding in the garden. Like we've already established, he chose the place so they would know where to look. And instead of hiding behind some rock or some tree or something inside the, the dark spots of this garden, Jesus meets them at the front gate. He confronts the mob. Look at verse four. Then Jesus knowing all that would happen to him. I want you, if you underline in your Bibles, like that's a good one to underline. Jesus knowing all that would happen to him. That, that's even the things that are to come, right? This is what he does. He comes forward and says to them, whom do you seek? So I'm sure they have an expectation in this of how this is gonna go, right? Like we need weapons, we need some flashlights, we're gonna have to go in there and find him and pull him out of there. And they show up with this mob of people and Jesus meets them at the front gate. And he asks them, hey, can I help you find someone? And so he just confronts the mob right, right at the beginning. Like, listen, like if, if, if you want proof positive, that Jesus was in sovereign control of everything that happens here. This is, this is the second thing that we've got to recognize in this text. If, if you don't want to be found, you don't meet him at the front gate, right? So Jesus confronts the mob and he comes out to him and he says, listen, is there someone that I can help you find? Who are you looking for? Then we get into verses five through nine. So they answer that question to him and what we see here is that Jesus commands their attention. Jesus commands their attention. Look at verse five. They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. And when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Now, this is, this is important for us to get right here. This is important for us to understand. This is a significant moment in this. We're going to see in the future, like this is one of those moments you see like with Jesus before Pilate where he's like, listen, like you're in control of this situation as far as I allow you to be in control of this situation, right? And that's what we see here. He, he, he is commanding their attention. 
They already know that something's special about him. They show up with all the guys. They ask him, who, or they tell him, we're looking for Jesus and Nazareth. And Jesus says, I am he. And their response, when he says, I am he, is to be knocked back to the ground, right? We see this happen all throughout scripture. When people come into contact with the living God. Their only response is this, whether, whether believers or not, think, think Paul on the road to Damascus, like when you're confronted with the holy and living God, this is your proper response. And so Jesus responds to him that I am he. Now it's important also that we understand that this is a statement of deity, right? Jesus, Jesus actually doesn't say I am he. We've added he for context. It's a little easier to read, but it, it makes us miss it makes us miss this moment a little bit because what Jesus is saying when they say, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus' response is, I am. And they're knocked back to the ground. Why is that significant? We see that in the book of Exodus. Remember, what is happening in context this very week? They're about to celebrate the Passover feast together. We see that established in the book of Exodus. That's also where we see God show up and speak to Moses in the form of a burning bush. Exodus chapter 3 and in verse 14, Moses asked God, who am I to say sent me if I go in there to, to bring your people out? And God says, I am who I am. Tell them I am has sent me. So these people, the Israelites, the, the Jews, should have recognized in this moment exactly what Jesus was saying. When they show up and say, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth, and he says, I am, they, they were to recognize that Jesus is making a claim of deity here, and they respond by being knocked back to the ground. So he's commanding their attention in this moment, and I love it. I love the fact that like, they're only in control of what they're allowed by God to be in control of in this. So we continue on. We see in verse 7, so he asked them again, whom do you seek? Now, I just want to stop here for just a second. Little straw poll. How many of you would have stuck around to ask any kind of follow-up questions after that just took place? Anybody? No, like, I just go home. You know what I mean? Like, I'm just going to take my torch and my weapon and go home to my wife and kids. Like, I'm just going to turn around and go about my business because we showed up to arrest somebody who just said I am and it knocked me to my face. That's all I need to know. He really is the son of God and you guys have a good night. I'm going home, right? Like, like that's what I would have done and responded here, but they, they asked again, they said, Jesus of Nazareth. So verse eight, Jesus answered, I told you that I am he, so if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken of those whom you gave me, I've lost not one. So he just said that in the high priestly prayer in John chapter 17. We see it fulfilled already in this moment where Jesus is, is commanding their attention. And I love this. I love seeing this picture because it so vividly reminds me of Jesus being in sovereign control of this moment. It's a powerful reminder to us that if, if Christ doesn't want to go to the cross... He doesn't go to the cross. This is a willing act that he decides to do on our behalf. And in this moment, he's reminding them that I really am in charge, but I'm gonna allow what's about to take place to happen for the sake of those people that I'm gonna die for. 
That's, that's an incredible thought. Look at verse 10 and 11. We'll conclude with this. The last thing that we see in this text is that Jesus clarified his purpose. Jesus clarified his purpose. Look at verse 10. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Now here we are again. Not very far from the last time that Peter received a rebuke from Jesus. And Peter's about to receive another rebuke from Jesus. I love that the Bible here just says, and Peter having a sword... You know, thought like what I should do right now. Remember, set the context in your mind. There's a bunch of people here, right? And Peter is zealous, but he's ignorant. He's zealous, but he's ignorant, right? Like, like he, he thinks that this would probably be the best way that I can help in this moment. So because he has a sword, he draws it. And the Bible tells us that he takes a swing at the high priest's servant, Malchus, and clearly probably missed his head, right? Like, I don't think anybody is in a battle and their strategic move is like, I'll go for the right ear. Like, that's never been a thing, right? Peter's a fisherman, not a warrior. So he, he draws a sword and he takes a, a swing at Malchus and the Bible tells us he cuts off his right ear. Now, in John, we don't get the details of what Jesus does next, but in Luke, Luke chapter 22, we do. And the Bible tells us that when Peter draws his sword and he cuts off Malchus's ear, that Jesus begins to rebuke Peter. But before he rebukes Peter, he bends down and he picks up the ear and he puts it back on and heals him. Now imagine again for a second. You already know that this man has done some pretty incredible things. When you showed up to arrest him, he said, I am, and you were knocked to your face. And then in this moment, when things are about to get a little bit crazy and out of control, Jesus calms the entire situation, he restores a man's ear, and he perfectly heals it. What else is there to conclude right now that this, this must be the Son of God? He's done some pretty incredible things, but he begins to clarify his purpose when he says in verse 11 to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Remember, I said zealous but ignorant. Peter, this isn't the way. Peter, this, this has to happen. You don't fully understand this yet, but I have to be arrested. And I'm going to the cross, and I will die, and I will be laid in the tomb, and I will be brought back to life, right? Like, like these things, they must take place. The, the way isn't to fight our way out of this deal. And I also love in Matthew, like I said, the other gospel writers, like they, they add details that, that help us put together a really full and beautiful picture. In, in Matthew chapter 26, verse 53, in Jesus' rebuke to Peter, he adds in there, if this wasn't supposed to happen, it wouldn't happen. Would my father not be ready to send 12 legions of angels? I want you to wrap your brain around this for a second. A legion of angels is 6,000. I'm not a math whiz, but I think it's 72,000 angels. So what Jesus is trying to tell Peter is like, listen, if this wasn't supposed to take place this way, I promise you it wouldn't take place. This only happens because I willfully go to the cross. 
Like 72,000 angels would show up here and, and, and get rid of And listen, it don't matter how many people you've got. 600 men here with weapons, that's nothing. The Bible tells us in Isaiah 36 and 37 and also 2 Kings 19.35 that God sends one angel to dispatch all the Assyrian army and in one night he kills 185,000 men. One angel. So what's Jesus mean by this? Jesus is just simply trying to help us understand and wrap our brains around the fact that if I didn't want to be arrested, I wouldn't be arrested. If I don't choose to go to the cross, then the cross never happens. And laying all that aside, Jesus doesn't need the help of any angel. You guys read Revelation with us, right? He just shows up and starts speaking things. And so for the fact that that this takes place, we have to recognize that this is all a part of the sovereign plan of God. And Jesus has demonstrated that over and over and over here. He chose the place knowing that it would be the best place to be found. When they showed up to arrest him, he confronts them at the front gate. When they ask or, or tell him who they're seeking, he, he demonstrates to them that he is in fact deity. He commands the entire, the, the entire thing, right? The entire interaction. And then ultimately, he clarifies his purpose by reminding us that if these things weren't supposed to take place, then they wouldn't take place. But here's the good news. The good news for those of us in this room is that this was God's plan from the very beginning. God's purpose was to send his one and only son to be arrested, to go to the cross, to die, to be buried in the grave and be raised to life three days later. Why? So that we might have forgiveness of our sins and eternal life. He's in sovereign control of every moment that takes place. And yet he willingly marches forward towards the cross so that you and I might be forgiven and have eternal life. That's what all of this study is about. And my prayer for you is that you would come to the same place, the same conclusion that John, who wrote this gospel, did. That you would decide and know that Jesus is the Son of God and that in him you can have life. So we're gonna end this week like we have all the other weeks with two very simple questions. Number one is this. Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Do you believe and the second question is also very simple. Has there ever been a time in your life where you come to saving faith? The Bible tells us that it's offered to you as a free gift. And it involves repentance of sin and belief that Jesus is God, that he is who he says he is. That's what the Bible teaches about this. Offered as a free gift to anyone who would repent and believe. So that's what I extend to you this morning in way of invitation. If you've never come to that time in your life, I pray this morning that you would come to the end of yourself, that God would bring you to that place and help you recognize that your only hope is him. Your only hope for salvation is Jesus Christ, and that's it. You can't be good enough. You can't try hard enough. You can't keep the law enough. The only way the Bible says that you can come to saving faith is through Jesus Christ. That's the whole reason why all of this has taken place. 
Jesus didn't die on the cross to demonstrate to you that he's a good teacher. Jesus died on the cross because he knows it's your only way to salvation. So he came to earth and did for you what you could never do on your own. And he offers up his life freely on the cross and comes back to life three days later, defeating sin, Satan, and death so that you might have eternal life. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we do recognize this morning, God, that you are the way, the truth, and the life. God, nobody comes to you except through Christ. And Lord, I, I pray today that every single person in this room would come to that conclusion that Jesus is the Son of God and that in Him and Him alone we can have life. God, I pray that you would move very specifically in the hearts and the minds of the people in this room. God, I pray that if we already know you, God, that we would stand in awe and marvel at what you've done on our behalf, willingly going to the cross, taking on the full wrath of God, making payment for our sin, God, so that we can have forgiveness and spend forever with you. God, I, I thank you for that. Lord, I also pray for the person in this room that may not have a relationship with you. So God, I pray that you would fill them with courage and boldness this morning. God, to repent and believe, to come to a place of saving faith where they recognize that their only hope for forgiveness of sins and their salvation is found in Jesus and him alone. And we pray this in Christ's name.